0: Well, if you would again uh, take out your Bible, let's turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, and we will be reading verses 12 through 25. John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pay careful attention to the reading. It. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, "'Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up.' And the Jews then said, "'It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, "'and you will raise it up in three days?' But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken.' Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for this reading of Your Word. We ask, O oh God, now that You would bless the preaching of Your Word, be with this Your servant. May the words that are spoken today be Your words. May we hear from You today as the, as the Word is open to us. And that we may grow in our affections for Jesus. May we be convicted of sin which may be in us. And may we rest in Christ more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had um, in, in, I had considered titling this message, The Inconvenience of Worship. The Inconvenience of Worship. I decided not to. Um, for a number of reasons, some of which maybe it communicates more than I would intend to. But the reference would actually be to the conveniences that some in the first century had put together when it came to bringing their sacrifices to the temple. Now in our own day, there are those who look for how they can best make worship convenient. Churches offer worship times which fit into the busy schedules of families. They offer online giving. They offer all kinds of other conveniences. Now, perhaps these things in and of themselves aren't bad, but there is a heart attitude which is of concern. You see, too many people who claim Christ, they claim to be Christians, view the public gathering for worship as, much, as nothing much more than a chore to be done. A, right, a, a religious box to check off for the week. Or as is in the case of many in our area, completely unnecessary to attending to the, to the late Lord's Day worship is to many people inconvenient. And what churches then have done is try to find ways to accommodate, to make things more palatable. And some have become more like carnivals and rock concerts, which in some cases is really just the Protestant version of Smells and Bells. It speaks to the human senses designed to make participants feel a certain way. But there are, in fact, in Scripture, principles we find for worship. In fact, in God's providence, we we talked about some of those even in Sunday school today. What we should understand is that the Lord takes His worship very seriously. And we don't have to look very far in Scripture to find examples of this. Think about Nadab and Abihu. The sons of Aaron who were destroyed because they brought strange fire before the Lord. Well, our present text also serves as an example that God takes his worship very seriously. Now, lest we think that the problem is only out there, you know, other churches, other other Christians, lest we think the problem is only out there, we need to consider our own hearts too, The problem is that even we don't take worship seriously. Even as the worship of God occurs through the means of grace, the word, the sacrament, and prayer, you and I could have have hearts which are far away. We could have minds which are not fixed upon the things of the Lord even we can treat God as an inconvenience or come into His worship flippantly. Not, not really caring what is going on around us. Not considering the fact that we have been brought into the holy place of God in His very presence. But our minds and our hearts are found elsewhere. Remember Jeremiah 17, 9, which reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so our passage today is a check even on our own hearts. Because the flippant ways in which which we as human beings treat the things of God are here in our text on display. Both in how uh, some were treating the temple the old covenant location for worship, which had been here turned into a a venerable marketplace, a a feedlot, and in how some of the so-called disciples treated the new temple, the one whose body would be raised from the dead, because there were some who believed because they saw the signs and wonders, but inwardly were still dead men. Thus we read that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, And so Jesus cleansed the temple and He cleanses the hearts of men as well. And so as we had looked last time, uh, we are in the middle of a number of transition points in the early days of Jesus' ministry. Here in our present text, as Jesus and His disciples are at the temple during the Passover, we see the Lord cleansing the house of God. This marks a transition Which was coming from the place of worship in a place, the shadow of things to come, to worship in a person, the substance of what was promised. The incident before this, we remember from last time, was a wedding feast. The ceremonial system, the outward cleansing was being transformed into the cleansing of the heart by the blood of Jesus the perfect bridegroom who brings the best of wine for the feast. And so here we're picking up in the narrative they had been at this wedding feast. Now it's not long, it doesn't say how long it was uh, that they, uh, before, what the interval of time was uh, before the, from the sign uh, done at the wedding feast at Canaan uh, to when Jesus and his mothers and brothers and disciples went down uh, to Capernaum. Uh, The Synoptic Gospels, though, also record that Jesus and His family... Uh, moved from Nazareth to Capernaum at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, Matthew points out that this was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. Specifically, he refers to Isaiah chapter 9. And he says, The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned and so Matthew says that as Jesus is making this move he's, he's here fulfilling prophecy now Capernaum is actually a transliteration of a place which means literally the village of Nahum. it's northeast of Canaan on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now it does say that they went down to Capernaum, and this is because they literally went down in elevation. John is regularly giving us some some kinds of geographic indicators. You know, and we'll see this again where they go up to Jerusalem. So here they went down. Now we note as well that Jesus and the others with him they only stayed there for a few days before they headed to Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, this is the first of three and and possibly four Passovers which John's Gospel mentions. John refers to it here as the Passover of the Jews. Now, this this might be another indication that the primary audience of John's Gospel were Gentiles, and so he sees the need to explain some of the Jewish elements. But it's also possible... But this is simply a reference to the people's home region. See, Passover, of course, was celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was located in the the province of Judea. And in ancient times, the residents of Judea were called Jews, both by the Hebrew people of the Diaspora and by the Gentiles. Just as people of Galilee were called Galileans, the people of Judea were referred to as Jews. Thus, it may be a reference to the Passover of the Jews being a geographic designation. Now this, of course, is different in the way we use uh, the term Jews in our own day as a reference to religion. Although even then, sometimes references to an ethnic background or to a culture, people of, of, of Jewish heritage. So John's use then of Jews wasn't necessarily to distinguish them from their distinguish their religion, but really the people that they were. The, the Hebrew people who resided around in Jerusalem in, in Judea. They were called Jews. And so we read that Jesus went up to Jerusalem for the Passover of the Jews. Again, notice the geographic designation of going up. Jerusalem stood at a higher elevation than the surrounding region. So again, the, the writer John is, is trying to help orient our minds, even geographically, of, of what is taking place here. Now, the, the Passover festival was celebrated on the 14th day of the lunar month of Nisan which corresponds with the full moon at the end of March or April. It commemorates the night when the Lord struck down the firstborn from the land of Egypt. Only those who were covered with the blood of the Lamb on their doorposts were spared. Exodus 12, 27 tells us, the Lord passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck down the Egyptians but spared our houses. Now, immediately following the celebration of Passover is the seven day festival of unleavened bread, which commemorates the hasty escape of the Hebrew people from Egypt. Now, understand this. These feasts, were incredibly important in the life of Israel. They commemorate, they remind the people of God of the mighty deeds of God. So not only that, but they also point forward as a sign of the one who would come. These are, again, the shadow of the things that would come. The one who would come, whose blood would cover them, who would spare them an eternal death for their sin. And so these feasts are incredibly significant. And when our Lord Jesus then comes into the temple and He observes the way in which it was being treated, it should then come as no surprise to us that He responds in the way that He does. When Jesus entered into the temple complex, He went into what is called the court of the Gentiles. He saw what must have appeared like a, like a stockyard. This is the temple of the Holy God, and you have vendors selling oxen and, and sheep and pigeons. And by the way, these are all animals which could be used for sacrifice. You, you see what they're doing. There were money changers there. They were exchanging coinage which the pilgrims had brought with them for the, uh, because their own currency from wherever they were was not acceptable, and so they needed to exchange it for uh, the type of currency which would be acceptable to give. And so there's this din of commerce going on at the temple. The bellowing of cattle, the the bleeding of sheep, the, the cooing of pigeons, the clinking of coins as the money changers do their work. All of the haggling which typically would go along with these sorts of things. Imagine the cacophony this would have been. Many who had come to Jerusalem for the feast, they had come from quite a distance. Jesus Himself came from quite a distance as He had come from Capernaum. They made a long trek to Jerusalem. And so for those who had come this long distance, it would have been difficult to bring with them the necessary livestock for their sacrifice. It would have been... Much more convenient to simply bring money along and then purchase the animals that you needed once you got there. In addition, the money offerings, they could only be given in certain coinage. You couldn't just bring uh, whatever coins you wanted to. It needed to come in coins which were of the purest silver and, and also wouldn't have had idolatrous images on them. And so this th- having a place to exchange your coinage would been uh, helpful and convenient. The problem really is not with the buying and selling of animals, nor was it really with the exchanging of money. At any other time, in any other place, these are legitimate business practices, even if there was a commission that was being charged. Uh, and, And by the way, in the text, there's no accusations being made that the merchants were cheating the people. No, the problem can be seen in this key phrase found in verse 14. In the temple. In the temple, the problem isn't with the business practices. The problem is that these business dealings were being done in the temple of God. If these merchants and vendors had conducted their business outside of the temple, someplace else, you know that that could be perfectly legitimate. But they were doing this in the temple courts, in the place of God's worship, in the shadow of the worship of a holy, righteous God. And this is Jesus' chief complaint against them. They had made His Father's house into an open market. In the place of quiet prayer and solemn reverence was the clinking of coins and the bleeding of sheep. In the place of holy adoration of the Lord God and contrite spirits was the buzz of Commerce. The place of the worship of God is an inappropriate location to be conducting business. And this incensed our Lord with righteous indignation. And so we see verse 15 telling us that he made a whip of hoars and he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the ox and he poured out the coins and the money changers and he overturned their tables. Now, why does he do this? Well, first of all, we should understand this. Jesus is not just having a fit of anger. Okay? He's, not, he's not out of control here. The whip which he fashioned wasn't for the people, but it was for the animals. You know, you don't just simply ask you know, cattle to, to leave. Like, you know, you wouldn't mind if you could just kind of move along. No, you needed a whip to, to drive them out. He was driving these animals out of the temple where they did not belong. and and pouring out the coins and overturning the money changers' tables Jesus was was essentially putting them out of business at least for that day they were not going to be able to conduct business there one could imagine as Jesus does this as he he drives the animals out as he overturns the the money changers' tables that this was a, a scene which seemed like chaos these things were not to be happening in the temple Commercial interests have no place with the worship of God. And what the people were doing was treating the holy things of God as common, as light, as unimportant. And Jesus was going to clean it out. Now there are some, as we look at this passage, who see a discrepancy between this incident... which John John records at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the incident which is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, where Jesus cleanses the temple at the end of his ministry, prior to his crucifixion. Now it's possible that John includes it here at the beginning because he's writing thematically. In other words, some have suggested that John's concerns are theological, and so he's not worried about being historically accurate. He simply wants his readers to see the theological connections between the events without worrying about historic accuracy. However, this idea, I don't think, seems to hold weight under closer scrutiny. You see, John takes great pains to note when and where events take place. He takes great pains to tell us about ge- gives a, giving us geographic markers. And this isn't, this isn't the only Passover which John records. And so it wouldn't be strange if this event didn't happen twice. Once at the beginning, and again recorded at the end. And here's the thing. Even, even though Jesus drove out the animals and he flipped over the tables of the money changers, it would not have taken much for the authorities to pick up the pieces set up the tables again, bring the animals back in, open shop again. It wouldn't have taken much. It may very well be that Jesus cleansed the temple on this occasion and then three years later did the exact same thing again. Whether it was once or twice, though doesn't matter that much because the spiritual lessons are the same. The priests and the temple authorities had turned the temple of the living God into a marketplace. And so Jesus, the Son of God, took action to clean and cleanse His Father's house. And of course, in doing this, this does not endure this doesn't make the Jewish authorities very happy with Him. They, you know, now his disciples will later remember this event in the words of Scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. John doesn't clarify for us whether the disciples remembered right then and there. If the, those words uh, were, came to their mind then, uh, this is actually from Psalm 69.9, or whether they would remember it later, reflecting on, these, on this after the resurrection. It seems probably though that it's after the resurrection based on verse 19, But we're not not sure. As I mentioned, John is referring, though, to Psalm 69, 9. There, the psalmist is crying out to God because of the great opposition he's facing from his enemies. And we know that Jesus will find himself faced with opposition from the Jewish authorities. As he he was coming into the temple, the spirit of Malachi chapter three, like a refiner, a refiner's fire, purifying the temple of the Lord. The zeal of Jesus was not just simply for the place of the temple, but for the activity that the temple was designed for. Jesus' zeal was for worship. This was his concern. Was the, was the worship of the Lord. Jesus' cleansing of the temple attest to His concern for the conduct of the worship of God. Men are not free to worship however they see, see fit in, in whatever convenient ways they may want to. Worship must be regulated by the Word of God. God must be treated as holy. Here, the worship of God is being muddled the conduct of commerce god was being treated as unimportant the people were trading quiet reverence for the convenience of having a wor- a, a sacrifice waiting for them to be purchased right there in the temple at best at best this is distraction but worse still it is the way in which the priests and the leaders were enriching themselves at the expense of the worshipers of God. They saw the things of God, the worship of God as, hey, here's a great money making opportunity for us. They turned the place of worship into a place to enrich themselves. This is not unlike many televangelists and so called ministries of our own day, is it? Aren't there many who turn the worship of God into just simply a way to? Enrich themselves. Apparently some think that uh, the Lord has laid on their heart that you need to provide them, uh, you know, a, a jet airplane or something. This is, this is the same kind of idea, isn't it? They were using God's worship for their own purposes. Christ saw fit to cleanse His Father's house of such things because this was an affront to the pure worship of God. Remember that the temple was the location, this was the focal point of God's relating to men. This was where God met with His people on earth, and they were treating it shamefully. The temple was also a visible illustration pointing to something greater. Remember, it was the shadow of things yet to come. It was pouring to the one who would come who is himself the temple of God, who himself is a focal point of worship. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he had come. And you, now, now you connect really where this problem lies, don't you? Because this was an affront on Jesus. And Jesus' actions certainly caused a stir among the Jewish authorities at the temple And some came to him demanding to know by what right he had to do these things. What sign, what what miracle would you perform that could justify this display of authority? They wanted some indication from him which would prove that he was right to turn over the tables. That he was right to, to uh, turn over, overturn really what they were themselves were permitting. Remember, the, the Jewish authorities and the temple authorities, they're the ones who allowed all this. They're the ones who probably encouraged all this to take place. And they're saying, what right do you have to, to overturn what we say is okay? They wanted some indication. They wanted some sign. They wanted Him to provide evidence through the performance of a sign that He had the authority to stop them. Remember, they they love their authority. Notice that they don't do any self-reflection as to whether or not Jesus' cleansing of the temple and the charges which He had laid out before them was justified. They they weren't thoughtful in any way. They weren't like, well, you know, I wonder if He's got a point. Like, should we really be doing this? No, they they don't ask those questions. Their concern was not whether or not the worship of God was being conducted rightly. That was not their concern. Their concern was their own authority. What right do you have to attempt to overturn our authority? In a sense, Jesus' words and actions brought their authority into question. As they saw matters, their authority was unquestionable. They could do as they pleased. They could treat God however they want. As one commentator suggested, if the temple authorities thought Jesus was simply a hooligan or a, a crazy person who had come into the temple and overturned everything, well, they had other recourses they could have pursued. The fact that they demand a sign demonstrates that they had at least an inkling of suspicion that Jesus was, at the very least, a heaven-sent prophet. They at least understood that much. And so they wanted him to prove, by a sign, what authority he had for the things he had done. A sign would satisfy them that Jesus was sent from God. Now Jesus is willing to play along with their little game. And so he suggests one. He says, you know, okay, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. You want a sign? Here's your your sign. Now on the surface, Jesus seems to be inviting the authorities to destroy the building that they were in and that Jesus would then rebuild that building in three days. And if so from their perspective, this becomes really a bluff. Oh, oh Really? What do you mean destroy the temple? Are you crazy? It has been—it taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? I mean, they're incredulous. And clearly the Jewish authorities did not understand what Jesus meant. That they would even consider destroying the literal temple for Jesus to rebuild it in three days was highly unlikely. But they had asked for a sign, and here was the sign that Jesus said that he would perform for them. Now, the disciples are also confused by the offered sign. In fact, they would only understand what is meant later after the resurrection. For Jesus was speaking not of the building, which eventually, by the way, would be destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. Jesus is speaking about his own body. Here we see Jesus making the connection between the temple as the location of God's worship and himself as the location of God's worship. The temple building that Jesus was standing in would in fact would in fact be destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. Those in, and those in our day who desire to see that temple rebuilt miss the point that Jesus is making. I mean... In a way, why would you want to go back to the shadow when you have the substance? Jesus is the true temple of God. He Himself is the place where the Holy God communes with sinful men. Through His sacrifice, men can approach God's throne of grace with boldness. By His death and resurrection, those who trust and rest in Him have life and have fellowship with Him. We, who had dwelt in darkness, have been brought into the kingdom of Jesus. We have seen the light. No longer is the place of worship geographic. It's in a person. And we worship in spirit and truth. We see this again later in John 4 when Jesus speaks with the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus would be put to death on the cross and He would, be risen, he would rise again gloriously from the dead in three days' time. Here was the sign which would prove His authority. Here is the sign that would, that would show them that He is from God because He is God. What the place was pointing to was a person. It pointed to Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. His disciples, again, are they're mystified. They're just as mystified as the Jewish authorities were by the statements of Jesus. And yet they will remember. And they will believe in this sign which Jesus would perform. Look at verse 22. And when therefore he was was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the temple that would be destroyed and raised in three days time. John himself admits that at first he didn't get it. Neither did any of the others. And it was only after Jesus raised from the dead that that the Spirit brought to remembrance these words and all of the events around him. And then they understood and they believed. Now at the same time, or at this same Passover rather, there were others who saw miraculous signs that Jesus performed. And they did believe in His name. Verse 23, And when they saw the signs that He was doing, notice though that the basis for their belief, it says they believed in the signs, the basis for their belief was upon signs being performed. Their belief in His name wasn't as their Savior. Perhaps they accepted Him as a, a great prophet, or they viewed Him as a political Messiah. But this doesn't mean that, that they believed And had faith, saving faith. They, their belief was based on signs being performed, not upon the teachings of Jesus, which those signs were pointing to. And so, sadly, they did not have true faith. And Jesus knew that. Unlike the religious leaders, Jesus could not be tricked, and so He did not entrust Himself to them. That is to say, that Christ did not consider them to be genuine disciples. His knowledge of the human heart was penetrating. No, no one needed to tell him anything about the human heart. He understood it well. How well do you think he understands your heart as well? Now, this, is, this is quite different from you and I, isn't it? Don't, don't we learn from experience? Experience with others? Experience with ourselves? In fact, don't we even have a hard time really even understanding our own hearts and matters? Jesus knows the human heart. Jesus, being the the true and eternal God, knew in a penetrating way the reality of those who called themselves disciples, those who claimed faith. Which is to say, then, that not all who profess to be followers of Christ are such. Jesus, more than anyone else, understood this well. And so he didn't entrust himself to them. The, the people claimed to, to trust him, but he did not trust them. And so though we have the sad report of false converse, there is a positive in, in, implication perhaps that we can draw from this. And that Jesus wonderfully promises to entrust himself to those who truly trust in him. There are some He doesn't entrust Himself to because they don't truly trust Him, but Jesus entrusts Himself to those who do trust in Him. Those who truly have faith in Him. Our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved congregation, is the temple of the living God. In Him we worship and find forgiveness. In Him we find our rest. By His wounds we have been healed. Through His shed blood we have peace with God. And so this building, which was a shadow, was was to make way for the reality which had come. And the zeal of our Lord then, in light of this, then it becomes quite instructive for us. Like the temple of old... was to be be the center of Israel's identity and the, the locus of God's presence with His people, we should remember that Jesus Christ is the center of our identity for those who trust and rest in Him. He is the locus of God's presence with us. And so when we meet for corporate worship on the Lord's Day, we are meeting with our God. We are meeting in spirit and in truth those who are in faith in Christ. We are meeting with God. Therefore, the meeting of God's people before God's throne of grace ought not be done flippantly, or as if this is unimportant, or as if you're not even present. You might as well not even be in the room We ought not to approach the throne of grace as those who are bored with the things of God. How could you be bored with God? The one who made you. The one who made all things. How could you be bored with Him? The the infinite God. Oh, well, you know, there's, there's not much to know about Him. You're only going to spend the rest of eternity, if you're a Christian, plumbing the depths and never getting to the end of them. How could you be bored with God? How could God ever bore you? How could we treat God as common? He's the most powerful, most holy. And some of the people of the first century did not know God. That's pretty clear. They treated the Lord as an object of interest, perhaps. you know, yeah, he he might give us some things here and there. you know we we offer him something. But you know they also viewed it as you know God is just God's going to get what I just give him. He's just going to have to be okay with whatever I give him. Here's what I got. I'll just give him whatever I got. They worshipped God at their own convenience. Beloved, let us not do such as that. And yet, in our heart of hearts, don't we treat the Creator just like this at times? Aren't we really guilty of this in our hearts? Of treating God as common, as a light thing? That we sometimes treat God as if He were not glorious, a glorious majesty, a consuming fire. The one who spoke all things into existence, don't we sometimes treat him like we might anyone else or as nothing important? Oh, beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, let us take care in our own hearts, not only, not only in the practice of our church, but in our hearts. That we may approach God with reverence and honor that He deserves through the blood of our Savior Jesus. You know, we can come boldly before God's throne of grace because of, of our Savior Jesus. This is true. But let us not treat the triune God lightly. For Jesus is the new location of worship, it is in Him that we bring our sacrifice of praise. And may we always be mindful of that. Hebrews 13, 12 tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His blood. And then the writer of Hebrews goes on to say this, Therefore, let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For, the, for here we find no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Our hope isn't found here. We are seeking that better city, that better country where Christ is. Jesus cleansing the temple points us to the cleansing that He will do and is even now doing in us through His shed blood. It points us to the need that we have to take worship seriously because God takes His own worship seriously. May we approach worship with reverence, with seriousness, but also with great joy. We can rejoice in our Savior. May we approach the Lord in the fear of the Lord, seeking to to do that which pleases Him because we love Him and we seek to worship Him in spirit and truth. May we approach our God in humility this day and every day. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we come before You, first of all, confessing that we... See how we fail in this regularly. That we at times come into the public worship of God. We approach you as if you were unimportant. We come with hearts which are far away. And yet you are constantly dragging us in. You are are loving us. May we approach you as you want to be approached. May we look to your word and see who you are. Who we are. And may our hearts be made right. We thank You, O God, for we can learn today that as Jesus went into the temple to cleanse the shadow of things that come, He was pointing to Himself and our need for Him. May we rest in Him today, every day. We praise You. We thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.